From the studios of KPCW in Park City, Utah, this is Cool Science Radio. Science and technology that's interesting, fun, and if we can understand it, well, so will you. I'm John Wells. And I'm Lynn Ware Peak. Our first guest this morning is Tom Chamberlain. He's the founder and CEO of EdLogix. EdLogix is a digital health communications company focused on transforming the way people learn about health. Improvement in health literacy translates to better health decisions, better health outcomes, and lower costs. We look forward to our conversation with Tom Chamberlain. And our second guest this morning is Ann Williams. She's a general editor for National Geographic, and her latest project is called Treasures of Egypt, a legacy in photographs from the pyramids to Cleopatra. This book celebrates the vibrant beauty and rich cultural heritage of Egypt on the 100th anniversary of the discovery of King Tut's tomb. Our next guest is Tom Chamberlain. He's the founder and CEO of EdLogix. EdLogix is a digital health communications company. It's focused on transforming the way people learn about health. The EdLogix platform is utilized by employers, health plans, academic institutions, and communities to improve health literacy, which translates better health decisions, better health outcomes, and importantly, lower costs. Tom Chamberlain, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Great. Thanks to be thanks. I'm glad to be here, John. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about uh, EdLogix and how we're helping people improve their health literacy. Well, we're very happy to have you on the program. Maybe we can start with your background and why you started EdLogix. Sure. Uh, actually, my background is really key to why EdLogix was created in the first place. Uh, I have a doctor of pharmacy. I got my pharmacy degree. I got went on and did a few residencies and, and got my doctorate in family practice and one of my residencies in um, ambulatory care. So in that professional capacity, I was managing lots of people with chronic conditions, but always challenged with individuals that had low health literacy. So even though we prescribed medications and, and managed their treatment plan, it was difficult for them to truly follow it and understand the importance of the steps that they needed to take to control their, their health conditions. So back then we used to give them flyers and pamphlets that was complicated. It wasn't written in a literacy level that was easy to understand. So I've always had the, the passion to come up with newer ways to improve health literacy. And that's why I started EdLogix 10 years ago was to make learning about health fun and engaging and easy to understand through dynamic interactive content and really introduce gamification into our platform to make learning about health fun and challenging with, with rewards and incentives. So the more they engage, the more incentives there were. And I thought if we could stimulate dopamine and get people engaged and want to come on the platform and learn, then we would have better health outcomes, uh, better economics and, and, uh, the healthcare cost, uh, runaway healthcare cost, could be addressed by having consumers more engaged in their health and making better healthcare decisions. And there are other healthcare uh, platforms out there. How do you compare yours to the others? Well, yeah, that's a good point. There's a lot of wellness platforms out there, and they do a great job. They're focused on behavior change and around diet and exercise and healthy behaviors. What I wanted to do was go where the money was, 86 cents of every dollar is spent on chronic conditions. So I wanted to educate people on cardiovascular disease, respiratory disease, diabetes, chronic conditions that really affect so many people. And then, and that evolved into how to navigate the healthcare system, uh, understanding cancer and understanding the, the common medical conditions that may not be chronic and, and as costly, but migraine headaches, urinary tract infections. So we wanted to get into the clinical side. We still do diet, exercise, nutrition, but our focus is really around chronic condition management so that they can better prevent diabetes from occurring. And if they do have a condition that they can manage it more effectively, not only for themselves, but it's really family-based intervention. It's building healthier families. So an employee, and we'll talk a little bit about our, our target market, but employees may in fact have 
their spouse at home, then, you know, oftentimes the female individual in that family is the one that manages the health of us guys and our kids. Giving that person, whether it's a, the, the mom or the dad, giving them the tools they need to manage the health of their, their kids or their, you know, family members. So it's really around chronic condition management and helping to drive behavior change and better compliance with therapy, treatment plans, and medications, as opposed to health and wellness that's very typical and is out there, and most employers use those kind of programs. Tom, I want to go back to the notion of gamification, and anyone who has ever been on an online platform, for me, I think about, you know, the language learning platform, Duolingo, and it is gamified to the nth degree where I mean, it makes me think that this dopamine response is what you mentioned. I think that's what we're getting when we get these little awards and rewards and little sounds and bells and things like that. We're we're sort of simple creatures, aren't we, that we respond to that. Can can you tell us about, about the whole idea behind gamification? Sure. No, that's a great question. And you use the word sounds. So it has to be you know, very engaging, use dopamine as I, as I did. But if we can get people excited about coming into our platform because they know that they're going to have a an immersive experience that's going to be fun, they're not reading stuff, although they can read plenty of information, but they know that they're going to come in and have gamification principles, which is incentives and climbing leaderboards and, like you said, points and rewards and um, really engaging with the platform. But game-based learning and gamification are a little bit different. So gamification is all those kind of leaderboards and points and badges and everything. Game-based learning is taking evidence-based health information and embedding it into simple games. There's a lot of people that says, I'm not really a gamer. And then they come back and say, but your games are different. It's simple games that teach them about what is HDL. It's the good cholesterol or what's a normal hemoglobin A1C for a diabetic. So it can be in a game like drag and drop, column on the left and column on the right, like we learned in the second grade, match match the two columns or beat the clock, which is kind of like a game of concentration or fact or myth games. So simple games that make learning about health fun. And so they're accumulating points, climbing a leaderboard, increasing their odds of winning cash prizes, gift cards, and other incentives that are funded by an employer or in the community, but they're really not even realizing as they're playing and, and having fun, they're learning about health. So game-based learning is what is core and, and unique to our platform. And it's, it's a, a more difficult platform to build because you're trying to engage and stimulate dopamine and have that layer in healthcare, which is everyone's chasing engagement. So if we can't engage a consumer, we can't, get them to do the right things. So that's how gamification, and it really started when corporations were implementing gamification, incentives, rewards, leaderboards, and and uh, those kind of things to do customer service or, or patients or, or employee safety programs. So corporations were starting to incorporate gamification into corporate America. And I thought, why don't we take those principles and, and implement it in healthcare? and try to get consumers better educated through those principles. You know, Tom, as you've been talking, it makes me think about, you know, before there was an internet, before we were learning what we are now able to access an online platform, uh, you know, how did people learn about their health? You know, they, I guess if you talk to your friends or your family and you compared stories about what your, you know, HDL and LDL levels were or whatever it is, it's, and you know, what if you're a fairly isolated person and you don't have a network of friends and family to talk and swap stories with? I mean, that's kind of how we learned back in the day, right? And so now th- there's just such a huge capacity for being able to learn, many of us go on things like WebMD and that sort of thing. But I can see how the game, the gaming, the simple games really cement our understanding and our learning. Absolutely. And, you know, so there's billions of searches of health content on Google, you know, every year. And it's very, it's a very hot topic. So people now with internet, but before it was, it was simple as 1.0, it was reading things. 
that were not written in simple plain text. So it didn't work and that's why you didn't have, you know, educated people in healthcare. Then when the internet came, you had the ability to kind of search online. But you have you have a lot of things posted out there. Where do you begin when you pull up a search around heart disease? There's so much there and whoever pays the most to get to the top of the list or advertising that's on there. So you're not really even sure what is real, what is evidence-based. What we do is with our clinical team, we curate this information, we validate it, and it has to be evidence-based. So we're providing, one of the biggest things that we hear from our users is that it's trustworthy and they understand it and they trust it. So that's a really important factor because there's tons of information. A lot of it is not accurate. Oh, that's fascinating. Well, uh, if you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we're speaking with Tom Chamberlain. He's the founder and CEO of Edlogix. It's a digital health communications company focused on transforming the way people learn about health and about how they make health decisions. And here in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, you have a comprehensive plan. I believe it's called Healthier 757. Can you tell me what you're doing for the Portsmouth employers, employees, community, kids in school, kids that go to the libraries, adults that go to libraries. What 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 is this program? Sure, and you use Portsmouth, New Hampshire. It's actually in Portsmouth, Virginia. And oh, okay. So yeah, it's Portsmouth, Virginia, which is actually a collection of, of cities in, in Hampton Roads. It's southeastern part of Virginia. So it's Virginia Beach, <clears throat> Norfolk, <clears throat> excuse me, Chesapeake and uh, Newport News and Suffolk, all these different cities together. So. That's the 757 area code. So it's healthier 757. And what I've always wanted to do is build healthy communities, but that's a hard thing to do. And you can't do it without a technology platform that can scale across a region. So we built, when, when the pandemic hit, our target audience were employers to make their employees better healthcare decision makers. And then universities started buying our platform to make their students healthier and uh, not just academic success, but physical health, mental health, and psychological health is important to college campuses. But when the pandemic hit, we focused our attention into information and education around COVID-19 and the chronic conditions that were important to those individuals, the ones that were actually having the worst outcomes, obese patients, diabetic patients, those with cardiovascular disease. So we built a community-based strategy. And to do that, we've engage the entire community, universities, healthcare systems. We built a library network. For those individuals that don't have access to the internet, they can go and they can learn at the library by having medical students from our medical school coming in and teaching them about heart disease or diabetes. And then we use the faith-based organizations to reach that, that uh, underserved community that oftentimes are very faith-based, particularly the minorities, uh, maybe some seniors and people that don't have access, they have community around faith-based. So we're using pastors and, and organizations to get to those consumers. And we go on television and radio and we're promoting this. It's free to the community, funded by philanthropy, by foundations, by corporations, and by philanthropists to make this available to individuals that don't have an employer that supports it as as an employee so we're real excited about building healthy communities and then replicating that blueprint in other cities around the country so you didn't actually say it but it it, it sounds like getting the faith-based organizations involved and getting uh, all these different facets of the community that you're trying to make sure that the most vulnerable are aware of of these programs and that they can participate is that correct yes yeah right now as you know health equity and health disparities is a really big issue in the employer world in the in the national federal state and and local uh local politics are all focusing a lot of energy towards programs that can really address health inequities and health disparities and health literacy has been identified as one of those social determinants of health that is as important as anything out there so if we're going to if we're going to address health disparities, we need to make people smarter. And those health disparities really relate to health equity. And I look at it, a line of 100 people, those that are at the back of the line that are not getting access to services are the ones that are the least health literate. Those that 
that really understand how to navigate the healthcare system. So if we can educate them, improve health literacy, teach them how to navigate and take better care of themselves, we can move them up closer to the front of the line so we can reduce health inequities. And that's a kind of a good way to understand that. But that's where, you know, we're focusing a lot of attention. We want to, you know, everyone for the most part, whether you're rich, poor, black or white, brown, they all have need to improve health literacy. It's complicated. And so, but that minority population is at increased risk for chronic conditions and, and lower health literacy. So we're putting more energy towards that population. Tom, you're making me think of, um, you know, during COVID, this is one of the things that surfaced is the the, the lack of health literacy among um among some populations, um, lesser served populations, and the, um, you know, th that distrust, I guess, um, among those populations because of the lack of information and the lack of sort of knowledge about what kind of information to trust. And it seems to me that, you know, a platform like Edlo Edlogic's getting through to those groups are you able to quantify in any meaningful way, you know, the the levels of literacy that are that are, you know, coming up, so that you know what kind of effect you're having? Yeah, we uh we have built into our platform different assessment tools so we can identify individuals that might have lower health literacy than others. So that's one thing that we're doing. The other thing is is that we're we're able to. Uh, assess the impact of our platform on knowledge improvement. So we assess baseline understanding of heart disease or diabetes or asthma, and then we educate them and then we reassess them. So we look at knowledge improvement. We also ask them about uh, changes of their behavior. So even though it's self-reported right now, 80% of our users say they've either changed or plan to change their behavior. And that's the ultimate goal of what we're trying to do is to get them to learn and understand the importance of decision-making around their family's health and their journey in the healthcare system. But we want them to, to really change their behavior and start reversing pre-diabetes and not going to diabetes so that they can understand how to do that. So we assess um, their literacy level. We also personalize the experience. So Lynn, you're going to get a different platform experience than John or I because you're a female. You're going to get osteoporosis, mammogram information. So we know that you're a female of a particular age. Younger, younger people are going to get different stuff than someone who's 65. And so it's um, also age, gender, um, it's attributes. But over time, we can start with artificial intelligence, and we don't sell any data. We use the data to improve personalization because people want information that's important to them. But if we know that you're going into weight management and diabetes, we can serve information around nutrition and around diabetes. So personalizing the user experience is really important. And that's where we're going with machine learning and making our platform smarter so we can be more pertinent to the individual users. It's interesting. I was going to ask you about diabetes and the lack of knowledge out there um, with diabetes being so prevalent and on the rise in our, especially this American culture. Um, it, it seems as though education is really, you know, one of the first things. And of course it's other things too, like food deserts and access to good quality food and, and all of that. But um, how, how does your product, how does, how is EdLogic's, distributed and who are your customers and how do you get it out into the hands of the people who need it most? Yeah, a few things in that question that are that are worth uh, discussing. But we, we initially started the, the, uh, the company to focus on employers, self-insured employers that have employees making bad healthcare decisions that cost them money, not only direct healthcare costs and claims, but also absenteeism and productivity. So healthy employees are more productive. And then, then we went into the universities, but the exciting part that we're doing, and we're still doing that, that's really important. And they have their own data, they have their own incentives, they have their own messaging capabilities. So they want to buy that as an employee health benefit. And so we work with the employers to get that out to their employees. 
Same thing with the with the universities, but in the consumer world, in the healthy communities, we make it available free to everyone and we call it rewards for healthy living. So Healthier 757 is the initiative, but the consumer facing site that they go to is rewards for healthy living. And we advertise on television, we have commercials, we have interviews, we have radio and all kinds of information that's you know, we attend health fairs, we have Spanish speaking videos and stuff. So the site will eventually be all Spanish as well. We're on that roadmap. But having this information out into the community through a number of different ways, and they they basically engage in this platform and learn about it through the libraries promoting it, the faith-based organizations that I talked about. But the, the ability to get access to information around health is one part, but we've become somewhat of a digital front door to an employer or to a university, or in this case, to a, to a community where they can learn about food deserts. They can learn about resources that are available around mental health. So not only we've evolved into a, an engaging platform that brings them into our platform, and once they're there, we incentivize them with more points to learn about telehealth and go sign up to learn about mental health or childcare services. And they can go and learn and sign up right off our platform. So that's the real exciting part is that we're teaching them about health literacy, but we're a communications tool for an entire community or organization. We're speaking with Tom Chamberlain. He's the founder and CEO of EdLogics. Tom, uh, I noticed on your website that you're uh, chairman of the board emeritus is Tommy Thompson, and um, many of us know him. He's former U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Services. How did Tommy get involved with your company? Yeah, Tommy and I, uh, in previous in my previous world of of speaking around the country, I used to engage Tommy as a speaker, and um, he's been a a uh, a longstanding friend of mine. I, I he's always been a champion of health literacy on Medicare reform, on Indian health services, trying to help those, those underserved populations. So when I formed uh, EdLogix, he was the natural guy to go to, to become our chairman of the board. And so he's still very actively engaged, opening up opportunities, pushing health literacy on his, you know, that we, he has a platform to do that. So that's how we got started. We, we did a lot of speaking. I brought him in as keynotes to a lot of the, programs that I would put together, bringing experts around the country to give us feedback and information on a variety of topics, this one being health literacy. So we started that. And then when we started the company, he came on and then we've been able to add other very, very influential people with, um, you know, tremendous credibility to our board and our advisors as well. So that's Tommy's, um, Story. I still talk to Tommy on a regular basis. Uh, he's very engaged and is excited about what we're doing, particularly in these healthy communities. Yeah, and I'm curious if this is a possible if the if the federal government, Medicare, for an example, would be a candidate for your product that people could, on their own elective basis, be able to uh, use some of the of the modules or components as 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 they wish. Yeah, Medicare and Medicaid, you know, Medicaid states are, are a target of ours. As a matter of fact, we're talking to some of the big insurance companies that have Medicaid populations. So we're using our platform because those those people all have phones. They can engage and they can learn and they can they can, you know, become better patients and and make better decisions. So tremendous opportunity to reduce healthcare costs and improve the lives of that Medicaid population. But same thing with the seniors. Seniors, loneliness is a big issue, and we have a, somewhat of a community that competing with one another to win significant cash prizes. On December 31st, someone in our community is going to win $5,000. Every month, there's a $500 winner, $300 winner, a $100 winner, and $250 winners that we donate to the food banks. But seniors, Medicare, that's a great, uh, great uh, comment that you made. Is a, is a target market, and we anticipate being in that both Medicaid and Medicare in the not-too-distant future. Unfortunately, we're almost out of time, and, uh, and, and we want to thank you for joining us this morning, Tom. Tom Chamberlain, uh, founder and CEO of EdLogix. And Lynn, did you have a quick question? 
Yeah, I just want, maybe it's more of a comment, but Tom, as you've been talking and then, you know, we bring up the seniors, I had already been thinking of my 83 year old mother. She's, she is not really isolated, but <laughs> she on technology, on being able to use, you know, the digital, you know, enter into the digital world. I also see as this is kind of serving a dual role, like learning about healthcare at the same time, you know, these simple games are people who don't have a huge command of the technological world will really benefit from this, won't they? Absolutely. And it can be done on an iPad. My mom's 86 and my dad's not with us, but they used to love playing this because they like playing games. They like crossword mm -hmm. puzzles. And so they can engage and, and really have, you know, instead of just getting up and doing their routine, they look forward to engaging and learning about health, having fun, a chance to compete. And that's a that's a big opportunity. Loneliness is one of the biggest factors that's affecting poor health outcomes in the seniors. Mm -hmm. But one other comment, and and before we close, is that the nursing shortage, the healthcare professional shortage that's coming upon us, is significant. And there's going to be more of a need for individuals to take better better control of their health because the resources are not going to be there. They're going to be virtual. They're going to have to reach into the rural communities, but in between visits, they need to be educated to make better healthcare decisions because the outcomes really happens at the home in between their hospitalization or their physician visits. And as we start getting an epidemic of nursing shortages, there's going to be an increased recognition by consumers to become smarter decision makers and learn from credible sources. Tom Chamberlain, founder and CEO of EdLogix. Tom, we wish you continued success with your company, and we thank you for joining us on Cool Science Radio. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Lynn Ware Peak here with John Wells. Our next guest is General Editor Ann Williams, who specializes in the ancient world and cultural heritage preservation. As a writer for three decades at National Geographic Magazine and Digital News, she reported on new discoveries in the latest research in archaeology around the world. Her latest project is the book Treasures of Egypt, a legacy in photographs from the pyramids to Cleopatra, which celebrates the vibrant beauty and rich cultural heritage of Egypt on the 100th anniversary of the discovery of King Tut's tomb. Anne Williams, welcome back to Cool Science Radio. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me back. Well, I believe last time we talked to you, we we both decided that you have the coolest job in the world. <laughs> <laughs> what What is your favorite thing about what you do? I learn things all the time. Um, I am an archaeologist by training, a journalist by trade. I have sort of specialized in ancient Egypt in an amateur way now for many years. But on working, uh, but during working on this book, I learned about so many things. Um, and it was just such a great joy to, to work on. Um, my specialty is all of the political complications at the end of the 18th dynasty. Um, but I learned things about, uh, you know, what happened at the beginning of ancient Egyptian history and what happened at the end and what happened during times when there were not strong kings and the, the normal structure of the politics of ancient Egypt fell apart. Um, and we have what are called intermediate periods. Um, you know, I, I learned so much about um, all of those periods working on this book. It was just such a great pleasure. Mm. Well, it's a beautiful book with just amazing photographs throughout. You know, I have some friends that when they look at history, ancient Egypt is just their very favorite thing. And I'm I'm wondering what it is that you think gives such mass appeal. I mean, I remember when King Tut's tomb started, you know, going on uh, on tour around the world. It was just so popular. What do you think draws people in so much to ancient Egypt? Well, I think there are a number of things. The architecture and the artifacts are just so beautiful. 
there really is nothing like it um, in most of the places of the world. So that is very often the gateway for people. And that was certainly the gateway for me. I, you know, my, my really, one of my first entries was King Tut and all of the wonderful things that came out of his tomb. Um, they are just so astoundingly beautiful and they represent Egypt at the peak of its power and wealth and influence, um, the, the craftspeople, the artists who put those things together were just the best, the absolute best. But there's another layer here that I think once you come in through that gateway, the other layer is that we're talking about 3,000 years of ancient history. And the more you know, the, you want, the more you want to know. Um, so we know the names of kings, we know their queens, we know their children, we know who worked for them, we know their high officials, we know what happened many times when a lot of the kings lost power and there were these periods of chaos. So the more you know, the more you are building this great jigsaw puzzle with the pieces of the evidence that the experts are putting together. And you too, as an amateur, can start putting those pieces together the more you know. So those of us who follow these things, we are waiting for this time of year. The dig season runs from about September to March uh, because those are the cool, cooler months. Um, you're not, uh, you know, sweltering. I have worked in Cairo in July it is not a happy experience. Um, so this is the dig season, and we are all looking every day for news that's coming out about the latest discoveries. And something is found, and then we all read it, and we say, aha, this is the piece of the puzzle, and I, I know exactly where to put that click. Here we go. Um, so, you know, that is the other level of fascination. Now, there's a deeper level if you want to go there. One of the things that I have done recently is I have taken online classes in reading ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. Now, I still read them like a kindergartner, um, even, even a pre-K. You know, I'm really quite bad at it. Um, but... Um, you know, it's it's fascinating. And what it does is it lights up the landscape for you. Um, because then ancient Egypt is just filled with billboards. These are the words of the ancient Egyptians themselves in an official capacity, of course, but they're speaking to us. And when you can read those things, it is so cool. Um, so anyway, there are all these really different levels that make ancient Egypt just so compelling um, and so sustaining as, as an interest, um, both in a professional sense and just in, in an amateur sense. You can come to it and do all those things and, you know, make your living as, I don't know, an orthopedist. <laughs> yes. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we're speaking with Ann Williams, who specializes in the ancient world and cultural heritage preservation. For three decades, she's written for National Geographic magazine and digital news. And she is now part of a project just released, Treasures of Egypt, a legacy in photographs from the pyramids to Cleopatra. Uh, and what is the latest current thinking on where Cleopatra's tomb may be? Oh, that is an interesting question. There is an archaeologist named Kathleen Martinez. Well, she's a lawyer. Um, speaking of people who <laughs> came into Egyptology from some other place, but she just got really fascinated with the saga of Cleopatra and has become an expert on Cleopatra's life and times. Now, she thinks that Cleo's tomb is someplace in and around a site called Teposimus Magna. In other words, it's in the north part of Egypt. It's in what we call the delta. In other words, there's a part of the Nile, there's a place where the Nile, roundabout Cairo, splits into a number of branches. And that sort of slows down the flow of the river and it allows it to 
drop its silt on the way to the Mediterranean and creates, you know, sort of typical alluvial fan that, that is created as, as rivers drop their load as they're flowing into a, a larger body of war, water. And Cleopatra was probably buried in that delta area. She lived in Alexandria, which is the great capital um, founded by Alexander the Great and built by the dynasty of which she was the latest pharaoh. Um, and it makes sense that she would be buried somewhere there. Um, where it is there and what shape it might be in when and if we find it you know those are those are ongoing questions but Kathleen Martinez has dedicated her career to to this great search in 1922 in America in our country and of course this happened all around the world National Geographic and Life magazines for the next couple of years had these spectacular pictures and stories that captivated a country similar to the 1969 moon landing. I, of course, wanted to be an aeronautical engineer, an astronaut. I wanted to be that guy in the white suit that, that closes the door and gives a thumbs up. I mean, I wanted to do all of it. I ended up in technology for a career, probably had something to do with all of that. But back in 1922, kids wanted to be archaeologists, explorers, screenwriters and authors wrote uh, books and and movies about all of this. And in our little town of Park City, we had a local theater that we named the Egyptian Theater, and we adorned it with all of these Egyptian pictures and all sorts of cool things on the walls. Uh, so historically, tell us what happened in our country in 1922 when all of this was released. Well, um, Howard Carter, who was the lead archaeologist, uh, stumbled, his team stumbled upon the top stair that led them to the underground tomb of King Tutankhamun on the 4th of November, 1922. So we are about to celebrate 100 years. This is a great year for Egyptology. But what was happening at that time was that there was a great flowering of media. And it was, um, instead of sort of having to hand carry a letter that would take months to get from point A to point B, there were ways to get um, information out. There were telegraphs, for instance, so that you could get messages out. There were magazines, there were newspapers. Um, and so the news about the discovery of King Tut's tomb got out pretty quickly. There was also, that was coupled with photography um, because suddenly, I mean, you have to imagine a time before the internet um, we are so used to just sort of powering up our computers in the morning, you know, clicking a button and finding that, you know, Liz Truss is about to resign. You know, we get news instantaneously. That was not the case in 1922. But to have these stories emerge about this fantastic discovery in Egypt emerge fairly quickly, this was sensational. And it was really, um, it's not that people hadn't th seen things like this before. Of course, there had been archaeological excavations being done in Egypt for, you know, some decades. But this was just an explosion of fabulous stuff. It was one fabulous piece of of, of funerary um, furniture and jewelry and um, artifacts after another. And it, it rolled out over the course of the next, really, 10 years. Howard Carter took the better part of the next 10 years, cataloging, curating, conserving all of these things that he took out of the tomb one by one, which meant that this discovery really was in the eyes of the world for the next 10 years. And what happened was there was a phenomenon that, that we now call Tut mania. Um, it was just, it was a great inspiration of every kind of 
art that you can possibly imagine. It inspired architecture, as you saw in the theater in the town where you grew up. It inspired jewelry. It inspired clothing. It inspired music. Um, there was a song, I think, that became popular. It was called Old King Tut Was a Merry Old Nut. Um, <laughs> you know, just everybody found inspiration in, you know, not only the artifacts coming out of the tomb, but the story of King Tut's life. Um, you know, he was nine years old when he came to the throne. He died when he was only about 19, so he was only on the throne for maybe 10 years. He was married to a woman named Ankasanamun, and there is some evidence that they were they were a young family trying to have children. There were two mummified, we think, preterm babies, probably stillborn. They were mummified and found in King Tut's tomb. I mean, you know, okay, on, on one level, this tomb is pharaonic and it's part of history. But you have to think when you see those two poor little mummified babies, you, you have to imagine the heartbreak of these two young people who were trying to have a family, trying to do um, what they were supposed to do to create an heir, and, you know, they were unable to do it. it it's just, you know, it's a tragedy. It's a heartbreak. So it, it's a story that just speaks to people on so many different levels. And I think, you know, that is why it, ha it has um, staying power, why it has had legs, why it is October 20th, 2022, and we're still talking about King Tut. Of course, we are doing exactly what it is he asked us to do. The ancient Egyptians asked us to call their names into eternity. And so every time I do one of these interviews, every time I create one of these books on ancient Egypt, I think, you know, I am doing exactly what the ancient Egyptians asked me to do. Mm, you're so compliant. <laughs> um, and i'm wondering i mean for the pharaohs of ancient egypt part of the appeal you know as you're talking about is, is the stories that they're able to recreate about you know said pharaoh but it's also what they took into the tombs with them and i'm wondering in archaeology of tombs around the world throughout history is there any greater amount of artifacts that is that are taken into a tomb with a king or a ruler or a pharaoh than in ancient Egypt? That I think that's quite the fascinating part of the story as well. There are ancient cultures all around the world who very similar beliefs. I, I think what, what I found very comforting um, when I study ancient cultures is the commonalities that I find because mm. people are people and people um, think about big issues um, ultimately in a very similar way, whether it was 3,000 years ago or today. Um, in many ancient cultures, there was a belief about the great beyond, about what happens to us after we pass from this life on earth as we know it. And many cultures believed that the deceased would need and want artifacts from this life. Um, and so you have, for instance, the Lord of Sipan that was found in, um, in Peru um, that I believe represents the Moche culture. And he was buried with all the stuff that he was going to need in the next life, including all of his golden doodads. Um, now, I happen to think that Tut's doodads are more beautiful, but, you know, that's just me. The people who study Moche, um, fine. The Lord of Sipan, you know, just spectacular. There is another example, for instance, the first emperor of China. And we know his burial best by the terracotta warriors in the early 1970s around the city of Xi'an. There were farmers who were working, I think, on an irrigation ditch. 
and they started to turn up these super funky statues um and you know and really spooky because these statues were about life size and i mean they really they really they looked like people um so these farmers um you know went out got the local authorities the local authorities brought in archaeologists and archaeologists said you know oh my goodness <laughs> We have something extraordinary here. Um, and so through the years, excavations have uncovered hundreds and hundreds of these statues. They were, we call them now the terracotta warriors. It is a whole army um, ranked row by row, archers, horse riders, um, foot soldiers, and they were meant to protect the emperor in from attack in the next life. Now, we, we see those terracotta warriors, and I think we sometimes forget that that is just one small part of an enormous burial complex that includes all sorts of other things, including, but not limited to, the tomb of the emperor himself, which the Chinese experts, rightly so, have decided not to touch for the moment because there may be new technologies that emerge in the future that would allow them to preserve things in that tomb that we would not be able to preserve today. And so they're being very cautious about it. But, you know, the terracotta warriors are just one small part of this enormous funerary complex. I hope I live long enough to see the Chinese authorities decide to open up that tomb because I think we might we all might have another, you know, King Tut moment. That is just going to be spectacular. Anyway, there are there are a lot of cultures around the world that have that belief in the afterlife that um that that um, provided at least high-end people with all of these wonderful things that they could use in the great beyond. Yes. Oh, well, from Howard Carter a hundred years ago, of course, we're celebrating King Tut's hun the hundredth year of uh, the discovery of King Tut's tomb. What? Fast forwarding to twenty twenty two. I know there were this year there was a pretty big discovery just outside of Cairo. And, and it's so interesting to know that um, still in such a populated area, you know, there are still many artifacts and, and you know, archaeological discoveries to be found. Can you talk to us about this year, what was found? Um, I don't know exactly which discovery you're referring to because there are discoveries that pop up all the time. Um, you know, th this is dig season between September and March. And so we're all, you know, waiting every day, you know, we're waiting to see the news come out. Um, but, you, you know, yes absolutely right there are things coming out of the ground all the time and they give us those pieces of the puzzle that you know we then say aha you know this piece goes here i mean one of the things that made the news one of the big pieces of news from last year was what they called the lost golden city so this was actually a community that was found near the modern city of Luxor. And it was a community that came from the time of Amenhotep III, who was one of the ancestors of King Tut. So, you know, a couple of generations back, but around about that time. And what was really interesting about this place was, you know, not golden treasures. It, it did not have that. But it came from the golden age of ancient Egyptian history, the, the time when, one of the times when ancient Egypt was at its peak of wealth. And this was a community. This was a community where people actually lived. And so the archeologists who were working there and the archeologists who have visited were able to see how people lived um, how streets were laid out, what houses were looked like. Um, there was an industrial area where clearly there was glass produced and metal produced. There was a big old pot of boiled meat um, and the residue survived in that pot, you know, which is just astonishing. Mm. 
walls that were undulating in some places like a snake, um, which made, you know, very good photographs. Um, But the reason why those walls were made that way was because they are, you can use the same amount of bricks as you would in a straight wall, but they're um, more structurally sound if you wind it that way. And I have found a phrase, a modern phrase that's used to describe those sneaky walls. It's called crinkle crankle. I say it all the time, crinkle crankle. Um, we've learned something. Um, anyway, that community and the amount of information that came to light about ordinary lives Um, was just astonishing. And some of the archaeologists who have visited that site, who who talk about walking through the streets and just being there where people lived, they they talk about it as being mind-blowing. And and I think, yeah, I I think that that is... uh, that is one of the very exceptional things that has been discovered lately. But there's more to come. So... Yay. <laughs> We're speaking with Ann Williams. Uh, she's a, a writer for National Geographic, last three decades. A spectacular, beautiful book has just been released that she's been the general editor of. It's The Treasures of Egypt, a legacy in photographs from the pyramids to Cleopatra. And I wanted to ask you about a controversial period in Egyptian history. For many, many years, Egyptians worshipped multiple semi-human gods then all of a sudden they get a new pharaoh that says well wait a minute we're going to get rid of them and we're going to have a singular god it's going to be a sun god and he builds this spectacular um you know i don't know what it was but it was it was a city around this whole thing can you talk about uh this period of history in egypt wow that's a subject of another book (laughs) <laughs> um, <laughs> so this same pharaoh, Amenhotep III, who built that lost city I talked about, he, uh, this 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 unusual king, was Amenhotep III's son. And actually, this very unusual king, when he came to the throne after his father died, um, his name was Amenhotep IV. And he reigned in the first few years, seemed to be, you know, very normal. He did things that a king was supposed to do. He got married. He married the, the ravishingly beautiful Nefertiti, who has become legendary. He built- and hear more with Anne Williams of National Geographic on our archived site kpcw.org you can hear the full conversation there thanks to our underwriters it innovated peak murray real estate san francisco design and berkshire hathaway home services utah properties thanks for tuning in to cool science radio here on kpcw stay tuned now from for national public radio news from washington